Hey there, and welcome to my podcast. I'm Jordan Rich, and this is On Mike with Jordan Rich, conversations with creative people from all walks of life. Before we get to our guest today, a couple of notes, how you can reach me, Jordan at chart, like a map, chartproductions.com, that's the email address. Of course, you can find out more at the website, chartproductions.com. My Twitter handle these days is at Jordan WBZ, and on Facebook, Jordan Rich Show. We've got a lot going on, and I'd love to hear from you. I also want to mention that I recently launched a brand new podcast, sort of a sister of this one, called On Mike with Jordan Rich Late Night Classics, featuring some of my favorite interviews from over 20 years of broadcasting live on WBZ in the late nights. You can download it with the iHeart app or access it like this podcast. Podcast on most platforms. Today's guest is a beautiful lady named Portland Helmick. I've known Portland for many, many, many years. She is a professional storyteller dedicated to telling stories that inform, enlighten, inspire, and entertain. I call her a Jackie of all trades, voiceover artist, on-camera performer and host, interviewer, podcaster, actor, and certainly an experienced producer. One of her passions and special interests is spreading awareness about the natural and alternative forms of healing out there for the body, mind, and spirit. Her work has appeared on PBS, Animal Planet, the Hallmark Channel, Travel Channel, History, the Comcast Network, Vermont Public Television, New England Cable News, and many more. And Portland, as an actor, has appeared in films such as HBO's The Wizard of Lies and on the HBO series The Newsroom, as well as on soap operas like All My Children. She's a remarkable lady with a cool story, so let's go on, Mike. What a lovely reunion this is. <laughs> Thank I you for having me, Jordan. Known you for many, many years, and for a while there, you decided to go west, young lady. I did indeed, yeah. I left for Los Angeles at the beginning of 2011, and I I lasted, let's put it that way, three years. <laughs> Seems to be the case with a lot of us Easterners. You know, we go west, and uh, some stay, but many return. And the truth is, the fact is, actually, I'm a Midwesterner. Mm-hmm. I grew up in St. Louis, but I've lived in the Northeast since I was 18. I went to college at NYU. And so, yeah, I think that the Northeast, New and especially New England, I came to this area when I was uh, in my 30s, 1992. So... It's in my blood now. Yeah. So Stanley Cup, you couldn't lose. I mean, you had the Blues won it and the Bruins didn't, but that's okay because you're <laughs> kind of skirting both. Well, we're going to be talking about your incredible career. And I say incredible because like me, you have not stayed still. <laughs> You've done a lot. And uh, I want to take us back a little bit to the uh, some of the early things that you've been involved in, in television, on screen, in, in radio and so forth. And a lot of it has to do with health mm-hmm. and wellness. Mm-hmm. Is there a personal connection to all this, a desire to do that from the start? I'm glad that I can say it's not that I suffered from some horrible condition or that someone that I was close to did. And that's why I became interested in the healing arts and alternative medicine, natural health and wellness. No, it was really just living in Burlington, Vermont in the early 1990s. I had moved up there. I had left uh, New York City. I'd studied acting. And while I loved the craft, I really could not tolerate the environment. And Mm -hmm. I moved up to Vermont for a different kind of life. And as I was living there, I would walk down Church Street, which was the main drag and still is the main drag in Burlington. And I would see these, you know, people hanging their signs out on their shingles for shamanic practitioners and past life regressionists and herbalists and Reiki practitioners and homeopaths. And I thought, I don't know anything about that stuff, but I'm. it's so fascinating to me. I can't tell you where it comes from, but I think that I'm interested in the the intersection between 
science and spirituality. I think I'm interested in the effects of the mind on the body. And I'm interested in, in healing and wellness and overcoming our limitations, not just our physical health problems, but our emotional and psychological limitations as well. I, I was a dedicated fan of the show you did regularly on one of the networks, the Health Half Hour Show. Well, I did a show called um, What's the Alternative for Varia Living TV. That's it, Varia. I couldn't think of Yeah, you remember that? I, absolutely. I watched several episodes. Are you serious? And, yes, absolutely. Did you Berea. get Varia Living TV? I did ah. at the time. I did, and I thought I stumbled upon you, and I said, oh, I know, this is Portland. And then I get into it, and there were some really wonderful, whether it be Reiki or even nutrition and, and the benefits of sleep. I mean, I really enjoyed a lot of that when I when I needed to really yeah. learn stuff. I did it from 2006 to 2008. I did 52 half-hour shows and, mm -hmm. and top and the topics sort of ranged from like yoga and insomnia, acupuncture for depression, herbal medicine for menopause. It was an expression of my deepest desires. It was a total labor of love. And some of the people you interviewed and met and connected with had to have had an influence on you and just in general, because they're such positive people, so many of them. And one of them was one of your guests. I was actually just looking at uh, some of your guests this morning. Loretta LaRoche was, oh. <laughs> she was, I did a show about humor and healing. And yes. she was, I think, uh, uh, the, the very last guest of my first season. And she's an absolute delight. So, she yeah, is. She yeah, is. They, you meet, meet some great people doing this. Kind yes, of stuff. I, it has had an effect. So, for example, if I have a health problem, I do not initially just run out to the doctor. I have all of these other tools and all of these other resources that I'm aware of from all the years that I've been interviewing people, writing articles about this stuff, producing segments about this, the show that I did. I mm. have other resources. And so I'm able to go to those resources first before I take, before I pop a pill before I would ever consider surgery or something like that, I, I go the natural route first. And I feel like the, the conventional route is great for diagnosing conditions, but I would not, it's not my first uh, choice when it comes to treating a condition. Well, one of the great benefits of being in the business we're in, if you take advantage of it, is meeting some of these people that you might not necessarily get a chance to connect with, sit down with and talk to for a half an hour or an hour. And you develop these connections that uh, over a lifetime you can use, take to heart and and share with other people. And it's I think it's one of the great side benefits of being in this business. You're exposed to so many yeah. people. And by being exposed to so many different types of people, you're exposed to so many different types of ideas. And the people that I have interviewed over the years have broadened my mind. They've broadened my perspective. You know, as I said in the introduction, you went to the Tisch School of the Arts, which is so well respected. And you talked a little bit at the beginning of our interview about not digging the whole acting scene. <laughs> Why? What was it about as the scene that turned Well, I off? love the craft of acting and I still do act here in Boston from time to time when films come to town and I do local commercials and voiceover work. But to really pursue a serious living as an actor, first of all, you've really got to live in New York and Los Angeles, New York or Los Angeles. And those two environments are very toxic for me. Uh, the commotion, the intensity, mm. all of the people, I just find them draining and depleting. And the entertainment industry can be pretty superficial. And there's a lot of emphasis. There was a lot of emphasis when I was a young woman on my appearance. And it sort of fed into a lot of a lot of my body image issues. Mm. And I and then and then there's just all of the sort of menial jobs that you need to work in order to have the flexibility to be able to just at the drop of a hat, go out on an audition. Mm. And those kinds of menial jobs, wait, waitressing, hostessing in restaurants, 
you know, doing being a secretary at a temp for a temp agency or something like that. Those jobs were really, really hard for me. Mm. It was very hard for me to work menial jobs. So I decided that it just wasn't for me. And I got into teaching English as a second language. And I moved up to Vermont and I started teaching up there and I got a master's degree up there. And it was while I was up there that I found out about this sort of natural health world in Vermont. And then I got into hosting and producing a, a little local show up there. And that's how it all sort of So the work-life balance for you, I mean, you had this amazing training and the love of the art of acting, but really you've taken that and moved a little sideways into something that is very fulfilling, it seems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that when people say to me, wow, you do so many different things. I mean, I remember once years ago, I, I think I interviewed when I first came to Boston at WBUR and somebody said to me, they looked at my resume and they were like, well, <laughs> you're, you know, you're a producer, a TV producer and you're a writer and you do voiceovers and you do acting, you've done hosting and report. Like, and I remember the person who was interviewing me saying something like, who are you? Like, what do you do? He, he, he wanted to peg me. And I, I, that really actually irked me mm. because I feel like everything I do, whether I am producing a story, whether I'm writing an article, whether I'm writing something for television, whether I'm writing a film, whether I'm voicing a TV commercial, whether I'm acting in a film, whether I'm hosting uh, a television show, whether I'm reporting on a set – it's all storytelling. Yes. It's all different aspects of the same thing. Absolutely. And and I think you hit on so many great issues, but writing is such an integral part of what you're doing. You've written actual pieces for magazines. You've written for websites. I think expanding beyond just the face, the image, and the voice, you've really been able to tell the story in so many different mediums. Yeah. Writing is, I, I think, probably at my core, that's probably what I... Well, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth between that. I was going to say that's that's sort of who I am most naturally, but I also am someone who very much enjoys public speaking. I think I really am a communicator. Mm. So I don't know. I sort of go back and forth. I feel very comfortable behind the scenes. I feel just as comfortable in front of a mic or in front of a camera. But writing is a big part of who I am. Yes. Since we're on the subject of storytelling, uh, congratulations to you for being involved with, in the beginning, uh, The Moth, which is a very <laughs> well-known platform that uh, I guess NPR has developed for storytelling. I love it. I mean, if you don't like something, wait a minute, because there's going to be a different story. What's your moth experience, Portland? I thought it was great fun. I uh, Actually, when I was living in Los Angeles, I, I had a little bit of a leg up on participating in the moth because when I lived in LA, I had seen a posting on a website for actors who had stories to tell about any kind of love, familial love, romantic love, any kind of love. And I submitted this story that I wrote and my story was chosen and I was one of 10 actors who participated in a, I think it was a six week performance at the Santa Monica Little, Little Theater. And I sat on a stool and I told this 10 minute story about a romantic relationship that I was coming out of and another romantic relationship that I was going into. And it was very personal and very forthcoming. And when I moved back to Boston in 2014, someone had told me about, you know, just an event at the Moth one. And I went one night and I put my name in the hat but I will preface it by saying I knew that the theme that night was going to be taboos. Every night there's a theme. Mm -hmm. And I had taken my 10-minute story that I had done in Los Angeles. And I had intentionally, because the stories can only be five minutes, I had cut it down to five minutes. And I had worked on it. And I thought, well, I'll throw my name in the ring or my name in the – you never know. And – I was chosen, and perhaps because I'd already performed before, that's why I just told you that story, perhaps because I have, you know, some, a decent amount of experience as a performer, I got up and I won. <laughs> 
So. Let, let me ask you this. Uh, you said throw your hat into the ring or whatever. What is the process? You just show up and- Yeah, you show up. I mean, uh, I think if you're on, a, like if you're on an email listserv, you you might know in advance, like a, a week or so in advance, what the theme is going to be that evening. If you're mm-hmm. not on that kind of a listserv, maybe you just show up and you find out what the theme is. But if you would like, you can put your name in quote unquote a hat and you don't know if you're going to be chosen. Mm. It, I think okay. they choose 10 people a night. And what's the prize? There is no prize. <laughs> it's just pride. It's to be able to come on your show and say, I won the moth she in 2014. Won the moth. <laughs> she won the moth and her clothes have holes in them as a result. That's uh, that's cool. And that brings up to mind the, the whole idea of what makes a great story. It's not just content, but it's the way it's delivered. Mm. You spend a lot of time and focus on on delivering a story so that people will get it and so that it'll have impact, don't you? Yeah, in in whatever format I'm telling a story. Uh, I write for the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, and I do that on a regular basis. And when I'm trying to tell stories for them, it's it's about being very clear. Um, it's about taking complex concepts and breaking them down in such a way that they become palatable for people. Um, if I'm writing for television or film, I think it's doing the same. But again, again, it, it really depends if if I'm in the story. Or if I'm not, right? If I'm in the story, then there's then I have to find a way to be able to weave my own point of view in there without being overbearing about it. Mm. You mentioned Kripalu, and we'll we'll start there because there's a podcast here that we'll talk about. But for those who don't know, describe Kripalu. It's kind of a special place on earth, and it's right here in Massachusetts. Yeah, it's in western Massachusetts in the Berkshires in Stockbridge. It was a yoga ashram in the 1970s. It's, I think, the largest holistic health center in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And you can go there and people think, oh, it's just a yoga center. It's not. You can go there and there are yoga classes, absolutely. There are meditation classes. But you can go there and do what is called R&R, rest and relaxation. And you can take any of a variety of classes. They might have nutrition classes. They might have classes on uh, getting a good night's sleep. They might have classes on parenting. They might have classes on art therapy or, or writing or drawing, dance. I mean, there's it's they've got everything there. And it's, uh, they've got really healthy food and it's on a beautiful campus. And I've been there several times and I've been writing for them probably for about seven years. I did a podcast for them from 2009 to 2016. That's seven years of a podcast. Wow. And are they still available by the way? They are still available. The podcast is called Kripalu Perspectives. Mm. And I interviewed probably, I don't know, probably over 50 or 60 wellness experts who either were faculty members at Kripalu and still are faculty members, I'm sure, or people who were coming to Kripalu to teach a workshop. I even interviewed Deepak Chopra. He was going to be uh, the one. I was going to say that the names, uh, Marion Williamson, who's running for president as we record this. I did not interview her. But there were so many people of that ilk of that, that ilk, uh, absolutely. come through there. That's cool. We'll be right back with today's guest in a moment. This podcast is produced at Chart Productions with technical assistance from Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media. Now, if you're interested in developing your own podcast, whether for business or fun, please get in touch. We're now actively producing a whole bunch of great shows. And with our decades of broadcast experience, we can help you every step of the way produce and push up to the cloud a podcast you can be proud of. Visit chartproductions.com, C-H-A-R-T productions.com, and get in touch if we can be of help. Now, back to today's episode. On the other side of the spectrum, in terms of podcasts, you did something that has really caught fire. And this is probably in the realm of content, 
people are so excited about true crime. You did one <laughs> called The Strangler. <laughs> yeah, it's called Stranglers. Stranglers, I'm yeah. sorry. And uh, yeah, it's so different from the, you know, my Kripalu Perspectives podcast. <laughs> it's it's crazy how different it is. But yes, uh, from 2016, late 2016, early 2017, I was the host and one of the producers and writers on Stranglers, which is a 12-part podcast. And it was basically a reinvestigation of the Boston Strangler murders. But we were not only trying to determine whether or not there was more than one Boston Strangler, because today there's still so much controversy mm-hmm. about that. But we were trying to put a human face on who some of these women were, because so mm-hmm. often when women or people are killed, so much, so, so much attention is paid to the killer and glorifying who these serial killers were, as opposed yes. to who were these women. And we yes. really got into telling their stories. Well, uh, uh, just to talk about the rise of podcasts, I mean, Serial on NPR was a humongous hit, sort of broke through and made podcasts legitimate. People all of a sudden couldn't wait. It sounds like you hit on something. You you tapped into what they've started, which is a thirst for information. And I don't think it's macabre at all for people to want to know about these things, because as you say, you're focusing on the victims here as well. We did. We did. And and it was because of Serial, I think, that that it happened. Yeah. Uh, we, it was, we, were, we were all listening to it in the office where I was working at Northern Light Productions, and they had done a film called Confessions of the Boston Strangler for Investigation Discovery, the TV channel. And Investigation Discovery came back to Northern Light Productions and said, podcasting's becoming really hot serials out there. What if we did a podcast about the Boston Strangler? And we were able to get into so much more detail than we were able to get into in the one hour film that they did or 90 minute film. That's so cool because podcasts enable us to tell stories with audio orally now and extend it as long as we need to extend it without some broadcast entity saying, no, your ratings aren't high enough or no, we don't want to support this on all of our stations. I think it's fabulous. I mean, that's why I do it. And and you must be getting a, a real charge out of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a much, much more intimate medium. You can get into so much more detail in an interview like this. You can mm. get into so much more. You can get a, a much better sense of who someone is. And if your podcast has narration in it, you can you can write with so much more detail than you can. When, you've, when you're doing television, you've got, as you said, you've got 22 minutes, right? A podca- Our Stranglers podcast was 45, 50 minutes long. We were able to get into infinitely more detail than we would have been able to if we had been doing it on TV. Was Casey Sherman a part of the he podcast? Was, he was in... Yes, he was. Uh, he, we used some of his interviews from the film Confessions of the Boston Strangler in our podcast. He was not available to be okay. interviewed for. C- the Casey is a former Channel Four in Boston news writer and producer, turned screenwriter, turned screenwriter, very successful novelist and writer. Of course, he had a relative, I believe, an aunt. Yeah, no, Mary Sullivan. Yes, she was yeah. the the final victim of right. the Boston Strangler in uh, January of 1964. Yes, and then he wrote that book for her, which originally I think was called A Rose for Mary. That's right. That's right. I remember chatting with him on air about that many years ago. So that is sort of done. It's in the cloud, and it will exist forever. We yes, assume. and so many people come back to me, and they're like. What's the next crime drama <laughs> podcast that you're going to do? And would I do one? I would, but I can't deny the fact that my natural inclinations are, and leanings are more toward a very different sort of arena, the natural health arena. So if I think if I were to do another podcast again, I might be interested in doing one 
about sort of what I was talking mm. about, the intersection of science and spirituality. But you are a prime example of someone who can't be boxed into one Thank particular you. I area. I so appreciate your saying that. And Thank I you. want to tie in something. As we record this podcast, uh, many people, <laughs> many people are watching an HBO miniseries called Chernobyl. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. I was actually looking for it the other day, but I my HBO right now, it's um mine is only in Spanish right now, so I have to call okay. like my provi- provider. So no, I have not seen it, but I have heard of it. Why do I bring it up? I don't bring it up because first of all, it's it's a brilliant and disquieting take on what happened. But the creator, the writer, the man behind it all, his credits, if you looked at his credits, you'd say, no way. His most famous credits are Hangover 1 and 2. I are you serious? He wrote that? He wrote Hangover 1 and 2. And people thought this guy could never handle something that's wow. being credited as one of the greatest miniseries ever. So the reason I bring him up is because here you are. And I love the fact that you have all of these things going on and they throw an idea at you and you say, it's a chance to tell another story. Well, that's true. And I think that that's what, I mean, that is what producers do, right? You're given a topic and you have to immerse yourself in it. You have to learn it from every single angle. You have to become an expert on it. I mean, I'm working on a short film right now for uh, Weir Farm. It's a film for the Visitor's Center about Julian Alden Weir, who was an American Impressionist painter. I'd never heard of him before. But now I know about Julian Alden Weir. You know? That's so true. I've, I've had uh, situations where I've interviewed an author on a particular subject going in, no knowledge. I come out of it with, uh, you know, Phoenix School uh, education because it's quick, but it's it's great. It's being introduced to things that normally you wouldn't uh, get a chance to see and meet. You're forced to do that when you produce. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You sent me this really cool – I love this. I, I thought it was already like pre-done, but you said you did it for me. My past, <laughs> my present. <laughs> Nobody else did that for you, George? Never. I mean, they've sent me res- resumes <laughs> What do you think that says about bios. me? <laughs> I think it says something about you that I've always noticed about you, and that is you pay attention to detail. Oh, that's interesting and, you said that. Yes, I'm very thorough. And I think that's what's wrong with media in its general form today. There's not a lot of that thorough attention to detail, even grammar. I mean, I'm being a, like, I'm like an old- I'm a grammar witch. Anybody who I, works with me knows that. <laughs> I, sound like I can an old pick out a dangling guy. modifier from 10 miles away. Drives me crazy. <laughs> and by the way, I'll make my own grammatical mistakes anytime. Thank you. And I do it. But I always, when I have time to sit down and read something, it drives me bananas. I've always appreciated people who really take the time to research a topic, to understand a guest, to understand what they're- going for and how to really bring out the best. Any tips on how that works beyond just hard work and homework? Do you have well, a, do you have a part Portland of it with, method? Well, is there a method? Well, I was going to say part of it with me comes just, I have a basic curiosity about people, but certainly I've done what you do many, many, many times because I've done so many interviews myself. And I really like to, yeah, I like to do my homework before I interview someone. I like to both, I both like to get a sense of, okay, you know, their background. I like to get a sense of where, where do they come from and obviously what have they done. But when I'm doing an interview, what I also like to try to do, and I think you know the good interviewers do this, they're able not to just get people to talk about what they do, but they're able to bring out who people are. Well, right? it's it's conversation. And the beauty of the podcast world, as people listen to this and millions of others, is that we all love to eavesdrop, yeah. innocently eavesdrop on people and, and share and learn without even having to interject. <laughs> we don't want to interrupt you, but please. That's why radio is still a hot medium. It's very hot and very popular because you get a chance to just listen and 
do other things while you're doing you it. You can be driving. You can be <laughs> sitting on a subway. Absolutely. But I think you you make this connection with people. And I noticed it a lot on that uh, TV show I watched from 2006. Really? That's to so the, nice. Yeah, what I noticed is you're not just asking questions and then waiting for the answer until you can ask the next one. You're really listening to what people oh, are saying. Thank and you. It makes for such a better show. Yeah, it also makes for just better relationships in general. I think listening is – I've written articles about the importance of listening. And I feel really, really, really strongly about that in human communication. I think so many people in our society just are waiting until they can speak next. Mm. They're not really interested in what the other person has to say. And I think that – as I said, I've written about this, the, the importance of holding space. I think when you hold a safe space for someone to express who they are – what they believe, what they think, how they're feeling, and you do it non-judgmentally and with compassion. I think that's one of the greatest gifts you can give another person is your attention. And that suggests respect, mutual respect, and that is something that is like an energy. It builds and in a good way, just like the negative energy builds. You can create that positive connection that uh, you're talking about. And I think you've done that so successfully, which is why your your credits go on and on and on oh, because wow. you've been able to do that. We talked a little bit about acting at the beginning. I want to come back to that because, as you say, you will step out of your role as a writer, producer, host, mm-hmm. and occasionally get behind the camera. It is a different deal, though, isn't it, when you're particularly on film, when the hands of so many people to get one shot, it takes forever, your control Level of control is a lot less. Your level, yes. I mean, as an actor, you are the lowest on the totem pole. And I think that's one of the reasons I have had a hard time maybe committing to it as a full-time profession. But I can't deny that when I get the opportunity to do it, I absolutely love it. And you're correct. It takes a village to to create a film. It's. A, I was just on a film set uh, just last week on this, uh, I say film set, it was a TV series mm-hmm. that's being shot in Boston called Defending Jacob. And I, I can't even count how many people were there. I got there at 1130 in the morning. I did not get on set to do my little, you know, whatever it was. I was playing a, a television legal expert. I, I was probably on set for 15 minutes. I waited around for eight hours to mm. do that. They were shooting so much stuff. There were so many people there. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. But I, 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 it's absolutely, it's so fun though. It's so much fun when you do it. And that's why so many people clamor to get into the field. It's great fun. And, and the reason so many people burn out so quickly is they forget the fact that they're supposed to be having some fun. I realize you have to make money and you got to pay the rent. And I've met so many performers and actors who um, are doing well and are just miserable. And I'm thinking, you're pretending to be somebody else. You're having, you're putting on a uniform or you're putting on, you're pretending to be a doctor and you don't have to go to medical school. How cool is that? (laughs) I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but I, like you, share the love of stage and performance. Has theater been a part of your well, that's what I studied. I mean, I studied lately, that. though. I mean, have you um, lately? I I think the last time I did something sort of theatrically, I did a, a staged reading at Boston. What is it? Boston Playwrights Theater, mm-hmm. probably a couple of years ago, with a woman who was staging a play, and I I worked on that. But uh, it's you know I work so frequently that the idea of committing to evening rehearsals. Yeah. Five and six nights a week. That's that would be a lot for me on a regular basis. Yeah. It, it does tax one's uh, constitution. So at film any or age. TV, you know, you can pop in there for a day if there's a television series or a movie that comes to Boston. I get cast in something, or I shoot a commercial in Boston, or I sometimes do work as a maybe a corporate spokesperson. I can do it for a day, and it's fun. Mm. Yeah. So, what advice, in in a nutshell, would you have for up and coming uh, college age people who are looking to get into 
some aspect of media, the kind of media we're doing, what would you mm. say are the skill sets they need to think about? Well, I think writing is a really, really important skill. And I think it's not something that's taught very well in our in our public school systems. But I, I think it's really, really important. So if, if you can tell a good story, then you have more you have more control in your ability to create your own, your own content. Mm. Um, other Otherwise, I would say diversify. You know, and that's what a lot of people are doing these days. I mean, I'm not as diversified in some ways as you. I'm not someone who has a lot of the technical know-how. So many young people today coming out of college, they're, they're, they're shooting their own stuff. They're editing their own stuff. They're, you know, they're, they're in their own pieces, maybe as a host or as a reporter. They're sort of in some ways expected to do everything. I find it actually kind of overwhelming. But I would think – but I think when you're coming out of school – Take take what is offered mm. you. Do it well because you will meet people. And when you meet people, those people will tell you about another person or another job. It's all about knowing people. That's what it's about. Yeah. And note to the world, the millennials didn't invent gig economy. <laughs> you and I have been doing gig economy. I mean, I granted have a base of operations, but so do you. But I mean, something comes along, looks like a fun project. We take it. And as we're doing one particular project, we're thinking about where's the next one coming from. It's just a way of life. And if you can live that way and be successful, it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Stay open. What is your best access on the uh, on the Internet? I have a website that I actually just put together last year that I'm pretty proud of with uh – with information about all the different types of work I do. And it's my name, portlandhelmich.com. So okay. my last name is H-E-L-M-I-C-H. And I've never asked you this, but the name Portland is a beautiful first Thank name. You. Is it? Uh, is there significance to that? There's not a geographic significance. My parents did not live or uh, in Portland <laughs> or conceive me in Portland. I was uh, born in St. Louis, Missouri, and my uncle was having lunch with my mother when she was pregnant with me. I'm the firstborn. My mother had chosen a name for a boy. She couldn't think of a name for a girl. And my uncle had just read in the newspaper that morning that James Mason, the actor, had a daughter named Portland, Portland oh. Mason. And he said to my mom, that is a great name. Well, James Mason is one of my favorite all-time actors, so you've got great lineage in some weird way. And maybe, you him. know, it's like maybe the, the seed was sort of planted. Both my uncle and my mother had great appreciation for theater and the movies and Broadway musicals. And and so here I was sort of named after this actor's daughter and then grew up with an interest in the arts. Don't change a thing. Don't change <laughs> a thing. Portland, it's wonderful to sit down, to get you to sit down long enough because you're so busy, mm -hmm. to chat with us and to share a, a bit about your career and about the fun you're having and about the, the creative juices that are flowing. Thank you so much for, for doing this. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you for listening, for downloading, for subscribing, for reviewing this podcast, which is available on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is Jordan Rich saying, be well so you can do good. <laughs>